You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and on today's episode, you and I will be taking stock of Australia's biotechnology sector with the help of Dr. Duncan McInnes. Duncan is the New South Wales Director of Stakeholder Engagement for MTP Connect, the industry growth centre at the heart of Australia's growing biotechnology sector, and responsible for delivering programs including the Biomedtech Horizons Program, the Medical Research Future Fund, and the Ready Initiative for Research Fellowships. With a professional history including a PhD in microbiology, time at three local biotech startups, and working for the commercialization units of UNSW and the University of Sydney, Duncan has an incredible and overarching knowledge of the pathways of medical research and translation in Australia. Whilst it was far from planned, his tenure at MTP Connect also happened to overlap with one of the most disruptive and impactful times in the industry's history, as the COVID-19 pandemic thrust biotechnology to the centre of public consciousness. Duncan McInnes, welcome to Lab Notes. Thanks, Leo. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Duncan. I'm looking forward to it. So perhaps we should start with a bit of a rundown of MTP Connect. Could you give our audience a sense of what the Growth Centre does and what your day job entails? Yeah, absolutely. So we call ourselves the Growth Centre for MedTech, Pharma, Biotech and Digital Health. Um, so just, just important to include biotech and digital health there as well, I think. Um, MTP Connect was set up in 2015. We're one of six industry growth centres and we all kind of work in slightly different ways, but we all have the same four key goals around helping build high growth potential industries. Those goals are things around um, helping improve commercialisation and collaboration, doing things in the workforce, skills and management, uh, helping people access the global supply chain and doing things in the policy and regulatory space to improve the sector so the stakeholder engagement team is relatively recent. Up until about mid-2019, MTP Connect had a general manager who looked after stakeholder engagement for the entire country. And around about October in that year, a decision was made to go to a more state-based approach. So I'm based in Sydney, obviously, and look after New South Wales ACT. I have a colleague, Andrew, up in Brisbane who looks after Queensland another colleague over in, in Perth, Tracy, who looks after WA, uh, and Beck Tunstall, who's based down in Melbourne, is the senior director in the team. She, she runs the team um, and also looks after Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. Day to day, what we do is very varied. We're a little bit different to the other growth centres in that as well as our funding for our growth centre activities, which comes to us from the Federal Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. We also administer about $150 million worth of medical research future fund funding on behalf of the Department of Health across four business units. Um, so as state the stakeholder engagement team, we work across pretty much anything that aligns with the four key goals that I outlined, but we also work really closely with those MRFF programs and so they are the Biomedtech Horizons program to help support early stage commercialization so it's a, a sort of a granting scheme that we run. Uh, a similar program called the Biomedical Translation Bridge program commercializing therapeutics, digital health, 
other interventions as well as medtech. Uh, we have our READY program, which is a large part of what we do in the workforce skills and development space, and there's a lot of things that we do from that. Uh, and we also have the Targeted Translation Research Accelerator, which is all around translating research to help um, improve outcomes in cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So in terms of answering your question, what we do day to day, we work across those four business units. Um, we're helping with companies, we're talking to universities and medical research institutes. Um, but I guess a very large part of what we do is just helping make connections in the sector. So that's a bit of an overview for you. Yes, a fantastic overview, Duncan. And I guess our audience is getting a sense of why MTP selected you to help them engage with stakeholders. Before we dig into some of those programs and the role of MTP Connect, I'd also like to give the audience, I guess, a sense of your history and what makes you such a good fit for this role of stakeholder engagement. Can you tell us a little about your family life growing up? Uh, I understand you were born in Sydney. I was born in Sydney and I've lived here for most of my life. In fact, uh, up until recently, I was living in the postcode that uh, I lived in for the first 23 years of my life. I've, I've since moved. Um, but yeah, I've been very much a Sydney boy. Um, my parents were both science teachers uh, by training, although um, dad's done a bunch of different stuff. Um, my sister is an academic. She's an associate professor at the University of Auckland and I think president of the New Zealand Ecological Society and my brother, uh, a lawyer. <laughs> yes, well, at this juncture, I'd usually ask a guest if they had any special teachers or mentors that helped inspire them into their career choice of science. But in your case, it's probably pretty clear. Is it fair to say that your family is the source of your scientific mind? Yeah, look, I think it was it was probably dad as much as anyone. He was very keen for us to be doing uh, science. And, and ultimately, it was something that I enjoyed. I don't think that the sort of the biotech path that I took was necessarily what he would have been most interested in. His interest is more in sort of uh, natural history and the, the sort of work that my sister does, ecology and, and that sort of thing. But Look, it was just, it was a very strong focus. And, and when, when we were growing up, well, when I was growing up, Dad worked at various times at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. He also worked at uh, the Australian Museum for a while. And so he would he would run events for them and for the, there was a group called the Australian Museum Society where he would take out groups and um, do science type stuff and he'd, he'd drag us along as well. So very much uh, a family thing. Well, it sounds like a great environment, Duncan. There's no need for the apple to fall far from that particular tree. So you obviously did go on and study science. You studied an undergraduate in microbiology with a first-class honours from the University of New South Wales. Was that experience in undergrad, I guess, as footloose and fancy-free as it is for many of us? It was. You know, it was, it was a super interesting time. You know, I, I very much enjoyed it. I was I was glad doing what I did and a lot of the stuff that I studied, I was very enthusiastic about. I actually majored in biotech and I would have, I think I did the requirements for a major in microbiology as well. My honours was in molecular biology and biochemistry and I worked with uh, a, a researcher, um, Associate Professor Kevin Barrow, after whom the Barrow Room at UNSW is, is now named um, and I was actually his very last honours student. He was in the process of shutting down that lab. So he had one PhD student who was finishing off and it was basically just me and him in the lab, which was a really interesting process. He was uh, 
a bit of an old school chemist. Um, and so I got to, to learn a lot of really interesting techniques from him. Yeah, it must have been great to have the opportunity to have such a personal relationship with your supervisor, particularly such an experienced supervisor. It was, and it's not something you necessarily appreciate at the time until you look back and think, you know, you see other people who are working under the tutelage of a, you know, maybe a a second or third year PhD student. And and I think the difference in the training that I got from Kevin was um, something that I I didn't appreciate necessarily until a a little bit later. Yeah. And so after that pretty positive honours experience, you went on to a PhD that was kind of split between the University of Western Sydney and UNSW. And your PhD thesis title, which I'll try to get right, was a metabolomic investigation of genes important in the production of flavor compounds by Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Now, for the 99% of the audience that has no idea what that means, myself included, before I researched this episode, I think we'll be all pleased to learn that you were studying the beer brewing process. Yeah, to some extent, it, it mean it was a on a it was a PhD scholarship that was funded by a linkage grant with Foster's Group. Um, so one of my honours committee, Professor Ian Dawes, who was at the University of New South Wales, had a postdoc who had taken up a position at the University of Western Sydney, as it was then, and they they'd got this grant and for it to further Vince's career, who was my my primary PhD supervisor, they had put that grant through um, UWS. So I was working day to day in Ian Dawes' lab. Um, Ian is a very well-known yeast molecular biologist. He's done a lot of fundamental work in in aging and and that kind of work using Saccharomyces cerevisiae as a model organism. The work that I did as part of my PhD, uh, as I say, was funded by Fosters and it was developing a metabolomics approach to try and get a better understanding of the influence of various genes in the flavour production of of beer and wine. Um, It was a fairly uh, academic kind of project in that most of what I was doing was looking at a lab strain of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which you you may know as baker's yeast or uh, or budding yeast. Um, It was at the period when metabolomics was a relatively new idea Genomics was pretty established. Transcriptomics was relatively well understood. Proteomics was still relatively young, but metabolomics is a field of study where you sort of say, well, let's look at how changes to environment or genetics or or how we're treating an organism affects the entire pool of metabolites that it produces and try and understand how the sort of organism-wide metabolism is changing based on those things. Up until that point, the the sort of the rise of the so-called systems biology approaches, but you kind of look at pathways without looking at the broader uh, influence of what you were looking at. So you'd kind of look at one pathway without understanding how it would affect the rest of the organism. Uh, Metabolomics was a, a way of, you know, looking at how a single gene knockout, for example, might affect the entire metabolism of, of the organism. So we did some work looking at some specific genes to try and better understand, first of all, what they were doing in Saccharomyces cerevisiae in, in the brewing process, um, and, and second of all, to try and identify new ones that hadn't previously been identified. From Foster's point of view, their main interest was in being able to take raw materials that they used to make their sort of their beer or whatever and get 
very consistent brews. So they wanted to understand the influence of these various genes, not necessarily with a view to getting a better flavour, but more with a view to getting that consistent flavour. Um, it was a really interesting time because at that point, the Australian Wine Research Institute down in Adelaide um, was kind of one of the groups who were leading the way in microbial metabolomics in Australia. And I think are still one of the nodes of uh, Metabolomics Australia. Yeah, great, Duncan. Well, good to see that science being put to use in an applied fashion. And I hope it gave you an excuse to try some beers on your weekends. Now, we should move on to your post-PhD life. I won't call it a postdoc because you didn't go on to formal study. You spent a bit of time in the grants office and then transitioned to the local biotechnology industry. How did you find transitioning from academia to industry at that juncture? Yeah, yeah. So so I guess immediately following my PhD, I was working in the UNSW grants management office for about a year, a little bit longer. And that was, I mean, that was a really interesting process. First of all, it was a perfect job to have post-PhD. It was a casual role that paid quite well. And, you know, I got to use a bit, a little bit of my, my scientific skills, but also learned a lot about the granting landscape in Australia and just how, you know, grants worked. If, if you want to learn how to write a grant, being able to see lots of applications is a really useful way to do that. But also what that taught me was that probably academia was not something that I was that enthusiastic about. I was a reasonable scientist and I enjoyed a lot of the process of academic research. But for me, some of the downs were not necessarily made up for by the ups. So that's that's what I learned from that. I also took an opportunity um, following my PhD to go to the US uh, and travel around. I was a pretty uh, avid rock climber at that time and so spent six months living out of the back of a Ford Explorer and climbing around the US. Um, so I went to Yosemite, spent quite a bit of time in Bishop. I was, I was there from September to March, came down the West Coast um, early on uh, and avoided the, the snow and cold in Yosemite and those kinds of places, and then headed along down the bottom, spent quite a lot of time uh, just outside El Paso uh, and then did the kind of um, the southern state sandstone uh, and then headed back up to Canada to sell my car after that. Well, sounds like an amazing trip, Duncan, and I must admit I'm not up to speed on my climbing routes, but I do know there's some incredible mountains uh, around that part of the US, and Yosemite in particular has those amazing granite faces like Yosemite and Half Dome. No doubt they're even more attractive when you're halfway up them on ropes. But we should get back to your professional life because you did come back from climbing in America and pretty much straight away jumped into industry roles. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So I came back uh, in, in desperate need of a job uh, and took the role at Phenomenex. It was an interesting role in that I did learn quite a lot, but also to some extent, it was one of those kind of sales roles that make scientists hate salespeople. <laughs> um, it was all about you know, making 20 calls a day and not, it wasn't really about solving people's problems. It was just about throwing a lot of stuff and hoping that things stuck. I don't know if that's how they still operate. Um, I've certainly talked to a few people who have come out of the company and, and have got a lot of time for them. Uh, certainly the people that, that were running the company in Australia at that time um, were super good value and I, I learned a lot from them. But yeah, it was a job that I wasn't too disappointed to leave. 
Well, yeah, I guess interesting you had that uh, experience, Duncan, and, and chafing somewhat under a management approach because your next steps were, were into very early stage companies, kind of biotech startups. You, your first one was with a group called ESL Biosciences. Can you tell us how you landed in that company and what the experience was like? Yeah, so so again, ESL was a sales role. Um, and again, it was something that I really learned a lot from that's been really useful in my career since then. Um, ESL are a company that was sort of founded by a husband and wife in Auckland. They predominantly distribute a German company called Euroimmune. It was a much different role in that, first of all, that, that the pool of potential customers was much smaller. And so to, to make sales, it was a lot more about solving problems, which was something that I was much more, I enjoyed a lot more. And to be honest, I was much more effective with. Um, I looked after ACT New South Wales and Queensland um, and managed to become for some of the, the bigger pathology labs in those states, essentially the sort of the first person that they would turn to when they had a problem. Um, and I just learned that, that that role kind of allowed me to learn the value of just really digging into the problems people have, understanding those and being able to say, well, if one lab has this problem, then probably the same lab in New South Wales or Queensland also has that problem. So let's go and talk to them about that. Oh, great. You do have that problem. Here's a solution for you. So again, that was something that's really taught me a lot. It just, it wasn't really a role where I was using my training in, in sort of molecular biology and that sort of thing particularly much. And I did have, to an extent, I had a sort of goal to be working in the sort of commercialization space. So when the, the opportunity to join Vectus came along, uh, Vectus Biosystems, a drug discovery company who um, at that time were not listed on the ASX, but are now a, a listed company, they were looking for a commercial manager um, so someone to sort of drive the process from where they were, which was some um, pretty promising looking small molecule drugs that had uh, antifibrotic and antihypertensive properties towards where they would be doing, you know, clinical trials. And ultimately their aim is to just sort of license those. It was a bit of a, a different tack in my career to that point. Um, and I sort of took a bit of a, a pay cut, but I was interested. I was happy to do that because it allowed me to get out of sales into into more of what I was keen on doing longer term. Yeah, and around the same time you were transitioning between ESL and Vectus, you also did a graduate diploma in business management from the Australian Institute of Business. It's interesting that you say you're kind of transitioning out of a sales role into a more technical one, but at the same time you're adding these business qualifications. Was that business training something that Vectus asked you to do or was it something you took on yourself? And if so, kind of how did you see it fitting into your career path moving forwards? Um, that was something that I chose to do myself. I was interested in, in learning more of the business side of things. The, the husband and wife who'd set up ESL, Susan and Stephen, Susan was the scientist, Stephen was the accountant. And I'd learnt a lot from the way that Stephen did things and it just it, it really sort of made clear to me that there was a lot of things about running business that I didn't understand. I liked the AIB course in that it was all online, which made things really easy. And yes, yeah, certainly learnt a lot from that. If I could go back to 18-year-old me setting out on a, a science degree and say, 
there's one thing that you need to learn, I would say get a working understanding of the basics of finance. Um, it's it's something that I didn't understand. You know, you know, as I've said, my parents were science teachers and in high school I didn't do business studies or any of those kinds of courses. Uh, and it probably wasn't really until I did that course that I understood just how big some of the gaps in my knowledge were. Yeah, I'm sure you're not alone there, Duncan. I too came from a scientific family and studied science at university, and I've since had to pick up the business skills through graduate diplomas and sometimes trial and error to my detriment. Uh, it's definitely something that we could make more of a priority at the school level. You know, we learn maths and English and history. Perhaps uh, personal finance needs to be right up there with the mandatory subjects that you have to take. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I, there, there was a, an article in, um, I think it was the AFR recently, Professor Eric Knight, who, when I was at UCID, uh, was Pro Vice-Chancellor for Enterprise and Engagement, is now the Dean of the Business School at Macquarie, talking about how, you know, science and engineering students should be learning these things. And look, I completely agree. Um, I, I, I think to some extent, the family focus on science made that a bit of a blind spot for me, um, and I probably didn't think it was it was worth the time. And, and probably if I could go back and tell eighteen year old me to do it, I wouldn't. Um, but you know, with the wisdom of age, you, you can see the, the importance of these things. So the AIB course was was interesting. I um, did the sort of the first eight courses, uh, and then sort of stopped from there rather than going on to the full MBA. Yeah, and you did start putting those skills to use. Uh, you, you came back to academia, but only to the extent that you joined the commercialization office uh, for Sydney University and ultimately became a business development manager in their uh, health and science faculties. What can you tell us about that experience being at the interface between academia and industry? Yeah, look, it was really interesting. And, and I'd, I'd kind of had in my mind that I did want to get back into, did want to move to a university tech transfer office. I'd sort of seen a lot of the people around who were doing jobs that I had an interest in doing um, and seen that they had worked in tech transfer offices and wanted to kind of get some of those skills. At Vectus, it was very much focused on the one project and, you know, it was that, that sort of laser focus was interesting. At the university, it was a much broader education, a much sort of wider exposure to different kinds of projects. As a commercialization officer, a lot of what I was doing was looking at contracts, um, particularly non-disclosure agreements. Um, and if I never have to review another non-disclosure agreement in my life, I'll, I won't be disappointed. Um, but that said, it was also a really useful process, learning how these things come together, what's important, and when you really need to just get the lawyers involved. So as commercialization officer, I was working across sort of the whole university, so seeing new opportunities coming in from, you know, engineering and business, as well as medicine, physical sciences. So that, that was kind of interesting in some respects, but again, my real passion was in the medical space. And part of my role as commercialization officer was helping the, the business development manager for the Faculty of Medicine and Health, who at that time um, was Elisa Salimovic, who's now with IP Group. Uh, and when she left, I got the opportunity to, to act in that role and then interviewed and was um, offered the role. 
super exciting. Um, the, the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney is, someone described it to me once as bigger than the University of Wollongong, the faculty by itself. And I'm not sure why they chose Wollongong, but I think the point is that it, it's, it's really big. It's spread across multiple campuses. You know, there's people at Westmead, there's people at the Colling Institute at Royal North Shore, obviously the people at RPA and at the, the UCID campus, but it was, a, it was a really big group of people. As business development manager, what we were doing mostly was industry engagement. So that, that sort of front piece of the commercialization um, process, helping researchers work with industry or, or other groups. Um, and again, sort of got to see a lot of really interesting contracts, you know, helping people out with negotiating with big pharma companies, with some of the SMEs, and just really understanding the importance of getting IP considerations sorted, um, getting to even just read a lot of the, um, the commercialization contracts that the university was putting together. So, yeah, fantastic role. Can I jump in at this point? Obviously, this role has exposed you to quite a lot of efforts in technology transfer and working with industry. And there's been a, a historical narrative in Australia that our universities are not good at this process. Now, I know your current employer, MTP Connect, is in part designed to address that challenge, but I wondered what your, your thoughts were on the current status of Australia's technology translation ecosystem, and I guess what's been changing to, to smooth that journey for researchers and entrepreneurs? Yeah, look, I think it's a really important question. And it, it is, as you said, a lot of the work that we've done with MTP Connect has been talking to people about what, where can we make changes. As MTP Connect, we have levers that we can pull. One of the levers that we don't have is the sort of the more structural things. I think part of the reason that universities in Australia are less effective than they could be is the fact that universities tend not to recognise commercialisation type activities, industry funding, that sort of thing when it comes to promotion uh, applications and that kind of thing. The other area where, where groups aren't particularly good at that is NHMRC and ARC. So if you're a researcher and you're trying to you know write grants that allow you to do the work that you want to do, if you're getting too far away from the academic paper production process, it, it doesn't really help you in the applications that you're trying to write. I mean, it, it is getting better, certainly, and, and various universities are absolutely putting in place processes whereby it's better recognised when you're doing work with industry or, you know, bringing in large industry-based grants. And that was certainly something that, that Sydney were very much driving towards. And the Faculty of Medicine and Health in particular were driving towards when I left. But there are still, it's still hard. And, and when you compare that to people who've come from the US or Europe where they're working with a startup company that they founded themselves and in their role, they come to Australia and they kind of, it's, it's a lot more difficult so there are certainly structural things that could be done to make that better, to recognise the, the impact that you can have by working commercially as well. There are, there are also some pretty complicated conflict of interest issues that need to be sorted out, and that was something that I know the group of eight universities were kind of wrestling with when I left. Um, the different universities had different appetites for risk in that space, um, and where they're sort of saying to funding bodies like ARC and NHMRC, we as a university 
have managed the risk. The different group of eight universities had different ways of sort of satisfying themselves that these funding bodies weren't going to come back and say, well, actually, here's a conflict of interest you haven't managed. Um, so has that answered the question, Leo? Yeah, Duncan, you've certainly given it a red hot go. And I think it demonstrates that there aren't simple solutions to this challenge of Australian university research translation. It, it almost requires a cultural shift that works across many levels. And you can't, you can't really boil that down to a single phrase or answer. But perhaps the time is right to move on to MTP Connect, which is part of that cultural transition. The, the organization exists to support research translation in bio and medical technologies specifically. Can you tell us perhaps what programs MTP has open that would be of interest to researchers and biomedical entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. There is just so much going on with MTP Connect that I, I just don't think that anyone who isn't uh, employed by MTP Connect, it's really hard for them to have an actual idea of just how much we're doing. Ready in particular is a super busy team uh, led by Jared Belcher, who is, um, he's got a really strong background in training programs and he's just really passionate about it, which I, I love. Uh, he's, he's a great guy to chat to. Ready is a big program. Um, essentially, there are sort of three pillars to Ready. So the, the first was around supporting programs that had been shown to be successful previously and helping them expand. So that includes groups like And Health. They're currently running their masterclass, um, which is supported by Ready. Um, the, the MedTech Actuator, um, the Medical Devices Partnering Program out of Adelaide, the Bridge and BridgeTech programs, which are run by QUT. Um, I'm almost certainly forgetting some. IMNIS, which is the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM, run by, by Maggie, which is a phenomenal program uh, and she is just amazing um, also also things like the APR intern program which is in a sort of a state of transition at the moment but we also support I think about 15 internships a year for our sector so the first pillar of ready is supporting those kinds of programs pillar two was a really interesting process of doing a, a sort of really deep detailed, sector-wide analysis of the skills gaps. Um, and that was published as an interim report, I think about October last year. And the final report was uh, released early this year. It's a, it's a really detailed document looking at where we need to be building skills if we want to sort of drive forward uh, and have our MTP sector con contribute as it could to the economy going forward. I think we identified about 20 odd skills gaps. And th the second part of that particular pillar is funding for groups to come to us with uh, proposals for programs that fill those identified gaps. So we've now announced the first four programs that will be coming out. And I'm gonna to have to try and remember these. So the first is, is gonna be run by ARCS out of Sydney. Uh, and they're going to do training on how to design clinical trials so that they satisfy the needs of payers as well as showing efficacy and safety. So we, we, one of the skills that we found was, you know, people had run these trials, often in a sort of academic kind of setting, come out the other end and not have those health economic type considerations out there included that showed that the benefit 
out, would outweigh the cost and make insurers or governments want to pay for the project. So it's one of those for medical devices, one of those for uh, therapeutics. Um, the second program that we announced was all around quality management systems. So Sear Pharma from Melbourne uh, have produced a freely available QMS primer, which covers GMP, so good manufacturing process. It also covers ISO 9001 and ISO 13485, uh, and that's freely available to anyone who wants to, to access it. Um, and then we also have some deep dives that Sear Pharma are doing on uh, ISO 9001, ISO 13485 and GLP. So that's the first two training programs. Um, we've just announced the second two. So one of those will be delivered by Cicada Innovations, again, out of Sydney. And that's all around understanding the clinical fit of your product. A lot of what you'll see when you talk to funders and a lot of what we see in the grant applications is people have identified something that might be a clinical need, but don't clearly understand how it is a commercial opportunity. You might have a clinical need where doctors say, yep, we need this. But if you can't identify the people who will pay for that product, then you don't actually have a business opportunity. And, and what Cicada have done over the last seven odd years of running their medical devices commercialization training program, is put together a really nice package around understanding the business opportunity. The final program will be led by BioIntellect with help from ARCs and I think BioDesign is around the funding um, journey and how to, how to find collaborators. So, so four really, really interesting training areas and I think sort of really relevant. Yeah, great, Duncan. And I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about around these training programs, but I am mindful of the time. And there's one more question I really wanted to get to in this interview because you started your tenure at MTP Connect in early 2020. And I think all of our listeners at this point will be well aware that 2020 was an incredibly disruptive time, particularly for the biotechnology industry in Australia, but for almost every industry you care to name, because the COVID-19 pandemic happened. And there were so many considerations around epidemiology of the disease and understanding how it infected uh, through to the personal protective equipment everybody needed to get their hands on, and more recently into the ideas of vaccines and treatments for the disease. I just wondered kind of how it has been working within MTP Connect over this incredibly disruptive period and what work MTP Connect as an organization has done to help Australia be as prepared as it can be for this world-changing event. Yeah, so MTP Connect, particularly through our chair, uh, Sue McClayman and, and um, CEO, Dan Grant, were very closely involved with the federal um, response in terms of understanding where we could find ventilators, understanding where we could find PPE, and Sue was, was a member on, on all of those sort of federal uh, response committees. Uh, I think I said that a, a lot of what we do is in making connections, and a lot of the stuff that we did was behind the scenes and facilitating using the, the networks that we have to help bring people together. We, we were very, very busy. Uh, and, and this time last year, Sue and Dan and, and sort of Beck, who's our senior director of the stakeholder engagement team, were um, spending a lot of very late nights. So yeah, we were intimately involved in that. Uh, and we, we have a report on our website that sort of outlines some of the work that MTP Connect did during that time, uh, along with industry and, and how we all sort of pulled together to to help address things, particularly in the early days. 
Yeah, great, Duncan. And look, it's clearly a fantastic example and case study for why organizations like M2P Connect are so valuable for the industry when you have these unexpected shifts and you need to quickly address them. And I guess that brings me to one of my final questions, which is around the lifespan of these industry growth centers. They were initially funded under Malcolm Turnbull's innovation agenda, and and they were time limited, I think out to 2022 or 2023. So we're coming up to that horizon now. What are the conversations like in MTP Connect in terms of, I guess, the sustainability of this organization? Yeah, look, there's there's certainly work being done in the background. Unfortunately, there's not too much I can talk about. As you said, at, at this stage, we, we have definite funding until uh, June 2022. When I when I took on the role at that, that point, we knew that we had funding until October 2021. So we've actually been extended beyond that. There is a lot of work being done by, by Dan uh, and he's uh, assisted by David Fox, who's our Senior Director in Charge of Sustainability to help build MTP Connect into a sustainable organisation. We, as I said earlier, we're a little bit different from the other growth centres in that we also have our MRFF funded programs, just about all of which extend beyond June 2022 anyway. So it's very likely that MTP Connect will exist as some kind of an entity beyond June 2022, even if it's just administering those programs. But look, I can't comment on too much other than to say that there is a lot of work being done to try and ensure that we do still exist. Well, we hope Dan and the team finds a way because it would be great to have MTP Connect as a permanent part of the ecosystem here, Duncan. A final question for this podcast interview, and it's one that we've asked all of our guests through the 2021 season, is if you had a piece of advice for a researcher or an entrepreneur who's looking to get into this science commercialization space, what would that be? The best piece of advice I could give just about anyone is learn how to listen to people and learn how to learn from people. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and I can think of a lot who sort of say, you know, they'll, they'll say to someone, well, can you set up a meeting for me? I want to talk to this person and learn what they think. Then they'll have the conversation and they won't hear the answer that they want and they will just sort of say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Working with another um, entrepreneur at the moment, he's a successful uh, guy. He's, he's been a bit of a serial entrepreneur. He's been successful particularly in the software space. He's now working in the medical device space. And it's just amazing how good he is at listening to people and taking on board their advice. But yeah, that, that ability to learn and, and listen. And when you're talking to someone and you're having a conversation, learning not to use the time when the other person is talking to think about what you're going to say next, but to actually listen to what they're saying uh, and, and understand the points that they're getting across. Fantastic advice there, Duncan. I've certainly enjoyed listening to you today and I hope our audience has taken some things on board as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. No worries. Thanks so much for your time, Leo. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital 
can find links to both of those organizations, along with our guest's biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.